You are now tuned in to the Hip Hop Learners Podcast, a place for discussions of hip hop literature, both scholarly as well as general audiences. For episode two, we have hip hop journalist and author Kathy Iandoli. As a journalist, Kathy has written for a wide range of publications such as Vibe, Hip Hop DX, The Grammys, The Source, Rolling Stone, Pitchfork, The Guardian, and so on. Her latest publication, God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip Hop, is out now with the paperback edition being released recently on November 10th. In addition to God Save the Queens, her new book, Baby Girl, better known as Aaliyah, is out on August 17th, 2021 through Atria Books' Simon Schuster. In this conversation, we discuss both book works with the focus on her methodology and how she ended up putting these together. That said, enjoy the podcast. All right. So first off, uh, congratulations so much on the success of God Save the Queens, as well as the book deal for the, the new Aaliyah book. It's it's really exciting, and I, I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much. I'm, uh, I'm excited for everyone to read it, honestly. Yeah, so I... Like I said, I, I'm really excited to read the Aaliyah book. The one book I actually have read, though, is God Save the Queen, since it's out now. Um, and I wanted to start with that before kind of getting into the the Aaliyah conversation, because there is a, quite a few kind of topics and themes that I wanted to discuss regarding um, not just the, the book, God Save the Queens, but also your process in, in writing that book, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the there's... I guess the first thing is there's this interesting argument that's made at the beginning of the book, and that's this notion to dispel this idea of first within hip-hop. Um, you referenced some thoughts on Cutmaster Cool V in the text, and I don't have the exact quote here in front of me, but it's to address this point that hip-hop culture may have been documented with some depth, but hip-hop itself has borrowed stylistic elements from elsewhere. So it's a collage-based art form, and to note the first rapper, or the first beatmaker, or the first DJ, or really the first anything, is to ignore the real kind of source material. And I find this idea fascinating, and I have my own thoughts on the subject as well, but can you elaborate a little bit on, on your choice here, and perhaps more directly give your thoughts on doing history in this way? Because ultimately, this book is kind of a history book. It's the essential history of women in hip hop. Yeah, for sure. I think with regard to the argument of who was first um, in terms of just like women in hip hop, I think that the argument is a lot more important to women than it is to men because of just how hard women had to fight to even get a seat at the table, right? Yeah. So I think it's more of like retroactive claiming of the crown because I don't think in the moment these pioneers were thinking about, well, I was the first one to come and do this, this, and this, right? I think in the absence of proper recognition and proper honoring, we now go back and we look at history to see who who was there, you know, from day one. You know, we have the first female MC. We have Shaw Rock, right? Yeah. And we have the first female MC soloist, MCWD. Um, you know, there's always just kind of like the the argument as to um, which uh, female MC crew came first and. You know, that, that's been kind of um, an argument that's been going back and forth between the sequence and um, and Mercedes ladies, you know. And I think it's really hard at this point, right, because in the absence of adequate documentation and, um, you know, news coverage, radio, all of those things, media, we, we're now going backwards and trying to, like, figure out what all of that means, you know. And I think it's just so important because of that, right? But... 
there's still an argument to be made that even claiming first is not always first. We don't, we don't know. Right. But I think, you know, for all intents and purposes, we have several first set in stone. I mean, obviously there's also just, you know, the idea of, um, you know, who appeared on the flyers first, you know, um, things like that. There's, there are ways, right. To check this stuff out. So it does add up, but you know, it is often difficult to kind of figure out how to put who in what category or title and, and all of that. But, you know, in the book, I did try to figure out through a series of conversations and research just how to do that accurately. And, you know, I, I tried my best and I, I, I think, I think I did okay. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to this idea of significance as well. Like, we are so trained to find the significance in the first, um, but I think in a way, and I understand your point, but I think in a way it kind of devalues the actual contribution to the culture. And that's ultimately, I think, what this book is about in in a, a large aspect. Because people, I don't think, really care about who the the first female rapper was, right? You care about the emotion that Roxanne Shante brought you. You care about the emotion that you got when you listened to MC Light over a 45 King beat. You don't really articulate, oh, she was the, the first or the fifth or the 17th female rapper to come out of X hood. Um, that's not really what makes us like something. And I don't think that what makes it culturally relevant. For a historian, though, I think that that's a difference in key. Because sure, you end up alluding to their accomplishments, and sometimes those accomplishments are prefaced with the first of something, let it be the first female artist to go platinum or what have you. Um, but I, again, I don't think that's really what this book ends up being about. I think the book is in large about a celebration of the cultural impact. And it doesn't really matter if we're talking about the Mercedes ladies that you mentioned or Nicki Minaj. They're treated with the, the same sort of respect. And to see history done that kind of throws out the importance of first in a way um, is really refreshing. Or at least maybe doesn't throw out the importance of the first, but it... Uh, contrast that with the importance of the cultural relevance. Yeah, and I think also we just have to keep in mind that it may not be important to us, but it's important to the artist. Yeah, of right? course. If you, if you think about it, and I'll argue this all day, Roxanne Chante was the first real battle rapper, right? What Roxanne Chante did in her battle against uh, Busy B is she set the archetype for what we see now in the competitive um, arena of battle rap, right? And that's something that no one really gives her credit for. No one, if someone says who was the first battle rapper, no one actually really thinks about that, right? And if you're talking to this generation, they may say Eminem and Eight Mile, right? <laughs> yeah, fair that's, enough. That's, that's where claiming first is so important, you know? Um, but also, I do believe that so many of the hip-hop pioneers, so many of the artists who had to carry hip-hop on their backs until they reached radio and, you know, vinyl release, all of those things, right? Those are artists that never get proper recognition either. Yeah. I mean, arguably, Cool Herc does, you know, but I made sure that, of course, his sister Cindy did as well because she, was her idea to throw that infamous party at 1520 Sedgwick. Yeah. So I do believe, to your point, you know, in in the interest of continuity and keeping a story going, it, it isn't a list of like first first achievements, right? Sure. It's not like a listable book, but at the same time, to show reverence toward the artist, 
as well as the story, I had to make a few points of note in in giving you know credit where it's due because I it, it doesn't it doesn't mean a lot to us right we just enjoy it we just enjoy the history um, but it means something to the people who created it so that's also why I made sure to at least try to strike that balance and to still pose the argument because the hard part is when you're dealing with a book that is supposed to entertain but also inform right in in this yeah. fashion. It's really difficult when you're now having to tell 40 years of history. Had a yeah, book about yeah. women in hip-hop yeah, come out in like the 90s or in the very early 2000s when I first wanted to do it. I think the story might have been a little bit different in how it was told, but I had to pack in for decades. And I still didn't get all of it in, right? Because then it turns into, literally turns into a textbook and, and nobody will read that for fun. So I tried to make this kind of like hybrid work where it can live in a classroom, but it can also just like live on your bookshelf for your own historical entertainment, you know, value and, and um, just to be able to reference things. I can't tell you how many times recently in doing my own work, I've had to like cross-reference things from my own book, which I was, you know. It's a, it's a good problem to have, but I was just like, oh, okay, <laughs> because I never had one of those things before when I was talking about women in hip-hop. I've been covering women in hip-hop actively, you know, for the greater part of 10 years or so, or even even um, longer, and I never had something to reference in um in, in book form, you know? Women, women got, like, one page, and it always said, like, ladies first at the top, right? And it didn't really go into detail of um, of anything. So it's good to have something of substance, you know, something that I can like, like a tangible uh, history that I can just look through myself. Like I, I write books that I want to read. <laughs> that's the that's the reality no doubt. of it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it, it really is kind of um and I don't want to say all encompassing because there's definitely details left out if you're writing any kind of book you can't cover everything. Um but at the same time as you said like prior to this book you really had to reference like individual uh, books or autobiographies written on specific portraits and like characters within the scene, right? Um and some of those were were very good, but at the same time they they left a lot to be desired and to be able to have something that's almost um the companion piece to other I guess like um more generic like hip hop history books like Jeff Chang's um Can't Stop Won't Stop for example um this works as like a really nice companion piece to that where you can kind of follow through and see a different perspective all the way through hip hop's history um and as you said it's it's right from the very beginning right Cool Herc's sister is is important in establishing those first block parties um it's it's with us all the way up until from the early seventies up until now. I appreciate that. Yeah. That's, that was absolutely the goal. On, um, on the note that it's important to the, the women themselves and I guess the artists themselves in order to recognize the, the first of anything. Um, I think that's even more important 
because we're we're addressing the culture of hip hop, and I think hip hop is probably the most historically obsessed culture out there, right? Um, it's a culture where being an OG is an auto pass, right? A, a culture that has entire subgenres like backpack rap um, dedicated to preserving like old instruments and old sounds. Um, a culture that lives or that kind of separates itself by distinguishing between like old school and new school. Um, so I think it's even more emphasized when we're talking about, about hip hop. I, I don't think that the same sort of um, desire to be appreciated as the first of something would necessarily end up coming if you were um, documenting a book about like jazz, for example, or rock and roll. Although it, it would probably still come up, but I don't think it would be as important to the artists themselves. Yeah. I mean, hip hop, the crown, like, you know, the, the idea of the, I guess like the goat, right. There's, there's, um, there's this greatest of all time achievement, this goalpost that, um, is set in hip hop. But I think it also has a lot to do with how, um, disrespected hip hop was, um, within the context of popular music for so long, you know, so there's always like this fight, like there's always just like this, constant leveling up to achieve this this big goal right and the big goal i really you know believe is just respect because you know when you say jazz or rock and roll of course there's no first but most of those musicians were held in a very high regard you know yeah, hip-hop sure. was in the early days was just called like the next step of disco and especially during when you're talking the late 80s early 90s which to which we refer to as the golden era of hip-hop it was being written off by so many places as, you know, gangster rap and too violent and too this and too that. And then once you had a lot of artists who were coming into the space and writing different songs, they were called quote unquote alternative hip hop as if they didn't fall under the hip hop umbrella because that umbrella was so stigmatized for so long that it had to be considered an alternative to be speaking about something positive. And I think that has, there's so many factors that have to do with that. I think race is the the most important one that um, is always brought to the table in terms of why hip hop um, isn't adequately respected. And that's the most unfortunate glaring, uh, you know, um, aspect of that, that that fight for respect. But then there's also like the socioeconomic, um, discussions surrounding it but now that hip-hop is so wealthy right now it's like an entirely different conversation and sometimes you know it'll be used as a novelty which a lot of um you know hip-hop purists hate right but it's all about just like that fight to the top and now that hip-hop has surpassed rock as the dominant genre it's like how how much further do you go but you know it's it's living with no ceilings. Yeah, that concept of um, I guess like subgenres, how they're named and how that uh, what the meaning behind that is. I, I never thought about it that way, but that's a really good point in terms of alternative hip hop and and why it was considered alternative. Um, I think even more when you're when you're talking about subgenres like experimental hip hop and what that means um, and why that wasn't just considered just hip hop, right? Um, people like Freestyle Fellowship or the Anticon movement, um, these kind of weird and wonkier sounds that exist within the genre are outcast as different and um, not alike the the actual genre itself, which is which is really interesting because it, it boils down to just being hip hop in the end. 
Yeah, and I mean the same thing could be said for underground hip hop, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, all there's, I mean, there's so many subgenres now. Um, like cloud rap was something for a while, you know. Um, there, there were, there's just so many different, and I don't want to say that subgenres, um, can't exist, right? Sure. Like they definitely can, and and as hip hop gets bigger, they certainly should. I mean, we have SoundCloud rap, whatever that means. We had mumble rap, you know. Yeah, there's a purpose uh, for them in terms of identifying the art, right? For sure, but I think at the time that like alternative hip hop was, um, was like the companion to gangster rap, I think that the conversation was not being driven in a direction of saying that hip hop was getting so big that it needed subgenres. I think it was just like really just um, providing these two, you know, stark contrasts as, as like a this or that, which, you know, mirrored itself in a different way with women in hip hop. Right. And that's where I, I present that argument of, um, you know, the sex kittens and the uh, Nubian goddesses. Right. Um, because it was just this like idea of like a this or a that. Right. There's no yeah. in between. And. Mm-hmm. Um, go on. Go on. No, um, <laughs> there was no in between. Uh, so it was just like this, this idea of, you know, fitting a certain criteria. And then I think like Lauren Hill was the one who really split the difference. But, you know, even she was, um, you know, presented as leaning away from the sex kittens until she did her details magazine cover with, um, where she was spray painted gold and she had her red, uh, shorts and black top on and everyone's like, Oh my gosh, what are you doing? Or like when Rod Digga did the tight video and she was in, um, you know, a really form fitting cat suit and Oh my God, what are you doing? Like, you're not supposed to be traveling to the other side of the tracks. Right. That, um, that was, a, you know, a pretty big problem during during that time period. So, you know, when it happened just on a grander scale of hip hop, where you didn't identify as gangster rap or alternative hip hop, and you sat in the middle and you were a man, you were considered quote unquote innovative. Yeah. But that wasn't the same thing or the same privilege given to women. Fair enough. You you write in the book that you thought writing this book would come naturally, and I, I guess it makes sense, right? You um, have been within kind of the hip-hop culture for a long period of time. Furthermore, you've been a woman within hip-hop culture for a long period of time. And as a fan of artists like Lauren Hill, Rod Digga, et cetera, um, you already had a certain amount of knowledge about a lot of the key figures that you would have talked about in the book. But you note that you were surprised by the challenges that ended up springing up. Um, were any of these challenges, do you think, unique to writing about hip-hop, um, I think to, to bridge it back to the, the previous conversation, do you think that this would have been an easier task, say, if you were to study the history of women within jazz or rock and roll, for example? You know, I'm not really sure. I, I would have to be writing those books because I, I don't know. Um, the one thing I can say is that I think when we look at women in hip-hop for so long, it's the sum of its parts, Right. And you follow through history as either a fan or an active participant in, in hip hop. And, you know, you observe and, and you see, you see trends, you see patterns, but you don't see always behind the scenes. 
And I think that the one distinguishing characteristic is that by design, hip hop music is often misogynistic, right? Yeah. That's probably yeah, no the, only, the only difference that you can apply where a lot of what was going on behind the scenes was reflected in the music, right? So there's that, right? But it's not to say that rock music, particularly like heavy metal, let's say, doesn't sure. hypersexualize women. And that's the thing. It's considered hypersexualizing. It's not considered misogynistic, right? You know, when you, when you think of like 80s rock and like White Snake, you know, um, with, uh, you know, um, Tawny Katan, um, like rolled across a Corvette or something, right? That was considered sexy. When it was done in hip hop, it was considered raunchy. So I think that there's, there's so many parts to that. And, you know, it's, it's almost like a loaded question, right? Because, you know, I may do a book on jazz and then find out so many crazy things were happening. But I mean, think sure. about it. Yeah. Even even um, if you have a rudimentary um, understanding of how the music industry works or how music history works, we've heard the story of Billie Holiday. We've heard the stories of Whitney Houston. We've yeah. heard the stories of Janis Joplin. We know that there we know that there's pain and trauma and misogyny in so many different ways whether or not it becomes a defining characteristic of the genre i can't really say and i wouldn't even go as far as saying it's a defining characteristic of hip-hop i just think that because we spent 40 years ignoring these stories when you pack it all into a book it's like oh whoa i didn't realize this 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 and also a lot of like what goes on in other genres right is is kind of like this uh you know, hindsight, right? Because most of the problems, I'll say, you know, existed in, in the early days. With hip hop, these things are still happening. There's still the debate over who's a sex kitten and who's not, right? Yeah. There's still a fight to have your music um, put in into conversations where it's not singled out as female rapper or, you know, women in hip hop or God forbid the femme title, right? Yeah, exactly. still that's what I was going to bring up, femme Yes. There's still these arguments. So it's not like we're looking at it even from a historical perspective. Like my book is for the most part open-ended because it's still happening. I'm not, I didn't get to end it and they looked happily ever after. Yeah, no doubt. We are in a space right now. We have so many amazing women in hip hop, you know, out there doing their thing. But to say that the um, we've entered the glory days and, and the tough roads are behind us, I don't believe that. Yeah, I'm I'm studying myself uh, the history of Canadian hip hop and kind of the development of um, hip hop within the country from around like 1985 up until the very early 2000s, anyhow. And one of the challenges that I ended up facing when I began my project, and it undoubtedly got easier as time went on, but that was finding kind of real names for a lot of the people and seek them out and speak to them. So you ended up doing a lot of interviews for this book, um, and during the the earlier kind of days, so when you're covering hip-hop within the 80s, especially people like Mercedes Ladies and some of the people that you mentioned are, don't necessarily have anything on vinyl or on wax, um, it's, it's often a lot more obscure and it's hard to be able to track some of these people down and actually speak to them. Um, 
it's and again especially so when you're dealing with the 80s um most of these people have long since retired and because it's hip-hop they're generally not going by their real names so they're going by pseudonyms and alter egos and of course you're not able to speak to everyone that you covered but did you find that particularly challenging in order to be able to track some of these people down and to um be able to actually get in contact with them to be able to speak to them yeah some yes some were difficult to get a hold of um but i also in the interest of amplifying certain voices that didn't get to speak just in general i tried to go to those um artists instead i think so much of um certain parts of hip-hop history are well documented and you know can be told from so many different perspectives but if there's enough information where it's it's told it's been told enough by the person you don't necessarily have to like talk to them again and rehash it but you should talk to the people who didn't get to tell their side of the story right yeah um so i think that it was kind of difficult to it was more difficult to not make it a book of quotes or like a bunch of as told twos right that doesn't create a story that just creates memes, right? A meme book. Yeah. So so that's where I think the difference was, you know, in how I put this book together and still tried to find room to talk and and get these stories out there. And the thing was, most of the stories and the quotes were so good that you didn't want to paraphrase. Like I really just wanted to put the chunk of the um, discussion in there. But there was a problem also with, how do you go ahead and tell a bunch of artists who were never paid for their art to tell their story to me for free? And that's yeah. another really difficult conversation to have. Because yeah, especially when you're profiting off of it in the long run, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and while I would love to have paid for every interview, then... I would have to write another book with an advance to pay myself to be able to pay my own bills and then to still pay for the interview, you know? Um, but you know, there were, there were plenty who were willing. Um, but then there were so many artists who were like, well, I'm planning on writing my own book. And it's hard to say in the moment to them, right. But before that memoir has to come out, there has to be one definitive history where you're referenced to then be able to put your side of the story out because there's somebody in, in middle America who had no idea who you are or what you went through. And if you can have one book that mentions you in a way that shows your important part of that history, then your, then your book has that much more value. And I hope that all of the um, memoirs that follow after God Save the Queen from the people who are writing them um, I hope that they do better than my book did. Like I, I, I want them to be at the top of the New York Times bestsellers list, like because it's they're the ones who deserve to be up there. This was just this was just the the guide. This was just kind of like the foundation of like okay, here's here's what happened here 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 and here, and then we can break it up again. I had to do essentially with some of its parts in book form, right? But then it can be broken back down again, and, and the individual stories can be told. And I just hope I hope they do. I know I know for a fact some of them are um but i hope there's more to come 
Yeah, I, I think the same way. So when I deal with my project here, I'm, I'm interviewing a large series of people across the country, and I've also ran into that same um, same hesitation in terms of I'm writing a memoir myself, and I don't really know if it's appropriate for me to end up lending my time in order to speak to you, because maybe you'll take away from this book that I plan on doing. And I haven't necessarily worded it in the way that you ended up addressing, but I think it's an important argument to be made anyway. Um, and I think the the kind of... The fundamental is that I appreciate the the culture within Canada. Like I, um, as I've developed this project specifically, and I, I had admiration for it prior to this project ever becoming a thing. But as you start interviewing people and you start really engaging in the material, you you fall in love with it. Um, this is this is something I feel very very passionate about as of now, um, and I want to cover the material with respect, but I want people to respect the material as well and not the material in right. terms of me writing but the material in terms of the art that this country has produced um so yeah i would i would feel the same way if somebody was to, to come out afterwards and, and make a memoir or an autobiography or whatever they want to end up doing a, a documentary on canadian hip-hop i want that to i want that to succeed as much as possible um and i'll be campaigning for that to succeed when it does end up being produced um I, I think that's a, an element that maybe gets lost when people end up writing books, but where we're fans of that material. Yeah. And it's difficult when you're talking about Canada too, because it's like theoretically a smaller territory. Sure. So the bigger, the bigger the artist in Canada, it's like the big fish, small pond situation. Right. So like you may want to talk to swollen members, right? Yeah. And I know mad child has been working on his book for years. So it makes it that much harder when you come to him and say, oh, I'm going to be writing this book. And he's like, well, so am I. And then you go to like Mocha only and you're like, well, I'm writing this book. And maybe he's like, so am I, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's difficult because you are trying to create <clears throat> this definitive work. But I think Canada, with Canadian hip hop artists, the perspective is a little skewed because of just the size of the territory or the size of the scene, rather. Even even though the scene is scattered, right, through, through different parts of Canada, it's still considered a scene. Like, there's somebody somewhere who will put Jellystone and Polly members in the same category because, oh, Canadian hip-hop. Yeah, right? exactly. And I think and, there's I think there's also a reason for that as well. Um, or maybe not a, a reason, but I think there is... Um, I think there's something there right so i one of the surprising things that i started when i did started doing my research is i i'm in the east coast myself i'm in halifax and i thought that it would probably be the smartest thing in order to uh kind of knock out one territory at a time so i had this idea in my mind that i was going to end up covering halifax london ontario toronto brandon manitoba um saskatoon and then vancouver and victoria those were going to be the scenes that i was really going to end up developing and i was going to tackle one at a time so i was going to end up doing um halifax first and then i was going to work my way east to west um finally finishing in vancouver and victoria and 
Um, when I started that project, uh, this project, I maybe got 10 interviews in before, um, and I was relying solely on the community in order to kind of bridge my circle of who to speak to. And eventually it just got to the point where it was impossible. People in Halifax would say, oh no, you have to end up speaking to um, Bird of Prey out in Vancouver, and here's his contact information, I'll get you in touch with them. And you can't pass down that opportunity, so you, you start building this web countrywide very quickly. Um, and when you start kind of unpacking it, you realize that even in the, the mid to late 90s before the internet was really utilized you had like rappers in Halifax that knew rappers in Vancouver on a first name basis um, just because of hip hop like that it was a community from east to west coast but exactly like you said um, the individual scenes are distinct and separate and they have their own styles and sounds it's, it's very similar to what the US would experience in the way of um, LA rap sounding different sonically than New York rap you can usually identify it if you're a hip hop fan um, you can usually kind of pinpoint where an artist came from um, obviously you miss sometimes and there's some more kind of uh, I don't know uh, styles that um, kind of blend um, different scenes and sounds but for the most part it's pretty identifiable and I think the same thing happens for Canada as well but there is um, there is that connection and that community from from east to west coast um, again this is a, a conversation on Canadian rap and I can talk all day about my project but uh, but it is an interesting point anyway yeah and I think what also happens is once they um, cross the border they kind of surrender their citizenship and that becomes an even harder conversation because theoretically hip hop, but Drake has now become an American hip hop artist for all kinds of purposes. Yeah. It's this need in order to get recognized by, um, by the States and in all reality, like it's the, yeah, being signed to a U.S. label or, um, selling records in the States becomes such a, a powerful um, pull to, to a lot of artists and a lot of artists resist that pull. And there's that, um, there's that kind of underground community that, that really um, identifies with being kind of raw and unfiltered and against commercial appeal um, that are obviously going to stay away from those sort of conversations. But um, to a large portion, that's really important is being recognized south of the border. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, to kind of talk about this uh, conversation about who to cover and who not to cover, um, you you have a you focus on a few different I guess characters throughout the book um, and in more detail of course you you cover a lot of different characters throughout the entirety of the book but you you center on a few different portraits and in, in more detail and one of which you spend a considerable amount of time on is Lauren Hill. Um, I guess what made you spend so much time to, to kind of park um, on Hill's contributions specifically? Well, Lauren Hill was kind of like this perfect package of um, like Lauren Hill embodied hip hop history. Okay. Because she started writing poems, right. And yeah. very loosely early on um, was involved in battle rap. Right. She moved further into becoming this like hip hop titan. Right. Then she moved into being part. She was in a group. Right. So she had the commercial success of being in a group. Then she moved further 
into being a solo artist who created music that combined singing and rapping what was still categorized as hip-hop. And then she became one of the biggest mainstream artists in the entire world. So Lauren Hill is hip-hop history. And that's why I felt that she deserved two chapters because of just what she represents within the scope of just hip-hop in general. She's it. She's She has... She got all of her Girl Scout badges. Okay, her sash is full. She has the lyrics to MC Light, right? Yeah. She has the fire of Queen Latifah. She has, um, you know, the the mainstream um, recognition of Nicki Minaj, yeah. right? She has she has it all. She she represents beginning to end. It's it's Lauren Hill. So. She just kind of writes this little chapter on the miseducation of Lauren Hill just because theoretically she only had one album, not including the live one. Really, that, you know, that would not only be disrespectful to her, but it would be disrespectful to the story because um, very rarely do we have an artist who represents every part of every rapper's history, both male and female. Every single rapper out today, out yesterday, can find a piece of Lauren Hill's history and apply it to their own. And that's not, that can't be said for every other artist. Yeah. She's also perhaps the most identifiable like women within hip hop. Maybe, maybe if we're speaking in today's context, uh, Nicki Minaj may end up having more recognition, but um, that's, probably i would say not gonna end up lasting long term like still looking back i think um i i think lauren hill ends up being the most recognizable and maybe nikki will end up being in the same category long term or maybe cardi b or some other contemporary will end up um having that spot but as it stands right now i think historically speaking lauren hill ends up being easily the most identifiable women within hip-hop when people start talking about uh women within hip-hop lauren hill is kind of the go-to well, I would argue also Queen Latifah because of sure. um, how far she's diversified herself. But I would also say Little Kim. You know, I think yeah, that, um, there's a few that get talked about a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, you know the history books will mention all of them. But to your point with regards to what Lauren Hill did on a mainstream level, there's someone somewhere who hasn't heard anything but telling me softly. And if they heard that, then she will still be part, she will still be relevant to their conversation. So yeah. there's that, right? But I don't think, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that the same couldn't be said for a song like Super Bass, right? We don't know yet, yeah. right? Uh, like I, that, especially since, you know, Nicki Minaj was on the Ellen show and like we're talking about like this, uh, you know, the the 21st century right like it's a different it's a different conversation yeah. but you know I, I do believe that because of the type of music Lauren Hill made and the variety you know diversity that's where you that's where you find her being able to appear in in conversations that um other artists aren't aren't in 
one of the things that I end up wrestling with, um, both as a journalist doing press interviews and as an author writing this book, is this quest to kind of tackle something new or uncharted. And you kind of mentioned this briefly as well. But if I interview you, for example, I want to be able to speak to you and ask you questions that you may not have covered elsewhere. Um, but at the same time, especially so with writing, you want to honor your topic and your interviewee appropriately. And sometimes skipping over details is simply not appropriate. Um, and I, I guess I bring this up specifically with Lauren Hill, as she's one of the few within your book that that have already had substantial literature done on her, right? Like notably, She Begat This by Joan Morgan. Um, was that kind of a thought or idea that you ended up wrestling with yourself when thinking about who to cover and who not to? No, because I wasn't writing it for click because it wasn't, um, it wasn't a website, right? Sure. I wasn't, I wasn't like, I wasn't looking for the shade room post, right? I was looking for an all encompassing history to make sure that what's well documented stays well documented with some additions and what was never documented gets finally documented. And I think it's a little bit different when you're writing for like the web, let's say, and you're writing for timeliness. I'm writing for timelessness. So it was a little bit different because I didn't, there were plenty of aha moments. Um, so many people have read my book and said, I never knew this and I never knew that. Um, a lot of the Lauren Hill conversations, to be honest, um, and the stories behind them, were from when I was actually still working in the music industry and having some, you know, off record conversations where the story could remain on record, but the voice didn't remain on record. So I was able to use it for the book as far as story context is concerned. Um, but a lot of that, a lot of the information surrounding Lauren Hill was really based upon the fact that, you know, I had, um, I had a front row seat. I was working in the industry. Um, what I did to kind of fortify that story was to speak with the people in the marketing department, like, um, Kandisa Mashaka and, you know, speak with, um, Amir with Questlove and, um, you know, having already had a history of conversations with people like Salam Remy, you know, you're able to kind of put this story together in a very unique way. But I think that, you know, there is, there is something to be said for not wanting to create a book that people are reading like they're rewatching The Office on Netflix, right? You know, yeah. um, you do want you do want new things. And for me, like I said in my intro, if if I was shocked, I knew the reader would be shocked. The same things that shocked me shocked so many people who I respect. Like there's um a journalist, a hip hop journalist, his name is Dart Adams. And he is like the hip hop historian. He knows everything beginning to end. And when um, Dart read God Save the Queen several times, which was like a big deal for me because of just how, how much history Dart knows. And when Dart messaged me or texted me and was like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's when I knew I did a good job. Because when you can, yeah, no doubt. when you can stump people who are built for, for this, that's when you know, because then you know that someone somewhere in, you know, Europe or some part of middle America, they're going to be stumped by surface level things that we were like, Oh yeah, yeah, that happened. But when I had someone like Dart hit me and say, what? That's, that's when I knew that um, I was, you know, taking the book to another level or took the book to another level rather. Yeah. And to your point, I had the same experience and by no means do I consider myself um, to be 
kind of to that level of, of kind of being a hip hop head and being that knowledgeable. Um, but I do a lot of reading. I enjoy learning about hip hop history. And there was definitely moments within the book that um, were at the very least new to me and immensely interesting. I think kind of that whole um, first kind of quarter of the book where it's mostly dealt with in the, the 80s and whatnot, I, I, I found a lot of that information new to me. Let it be the Mercedes ladies, or as you brought up earlier, the um, the impact of Cool Herc's sister. That was all information that I had no idea occurred. Um, and it was really interesting to be able to get those looks. Yeah, that that was something that I was really excited to have, right? And it was actually MCWD who um, put me on to Cindy Campbell. And when she told me that, that's when I realized, I was like, oh, this is a story story. Because now I have, now I have the, the thesis statement. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that, there... Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, while I was reading the text here, there were there were times that I, I was kind of waiting for for certain people to be to be covered, um, specifically women that have dominated within kind of the underground rap scenes for quite some time. So women like Dessa, Eternia, uh, Psalm One, Jean Grey, Rhapsody, and I think some of these names do get mentioned once or twice. Um, but there's definitely room to kind of expand on these characters. Um, what was the reason for focusing, I guess, your conversation on, say, the more business-oriented community, or I don't want to say more like mainstream or commercial, but at the very least, the more popular and on paper noteworthy? Um, and was there ever a conversation with yourself in terms of covering some of these characters like Dessa and Eternia, Jean Grey, um, Rhapsody with a little bit more detail? Yeah, I mean, I spoke with Dessa, and um, she's in the book um, at, at a reasonable um extent i um i discussed gene gray i discussed bahamadia very extensively and i discussed rhapsody extensively as far as eternia was concerned that's another it's it's, again if you're speaking about a scene or you're speaking about a subject you don't need every single perspective to paint the picture and again if you're if you're talking about let's say like a hip-hop history book right just in general you know when you're talking about the 80s 90s um, early aughts and, you know, the, the 2020s, right? And you're talking about, like, what was going on in various scenes. Do you always get a chapter on dilated peoples? You know? Yeah, do you, do you always Do you always get a chapter on, um, you know, RGD2 in yeah. terms of production or LP? Or maybe now you might get it with LP, right, because they're on the jewels. Yeah. But I think the, the other problem when it comes to a book on women in hip-hop and again, this isn't any like disrespect to your question, but this is something that has happened over and over again, where I'll be presented with, well, you didn't, you didn't make sure that you mentioned, um, you know, lady such and such. She was actually a really big deal, you know, over in um, the Boston hip hop scene. And, and, you know, she was, it, it does become, and that's, again, it's that badge of honor for saying, you know, someone like, you know, a woman who raps. Right. And that's that's the bigger problem when you're trying to put this story together is this wasn't a race to list every woman who ever rapped. And this wasn't a race to um, list every woman who rapped and had more than a thousand fans. It was a book to show that while everything was going on in hip hop, this is what was happening to women. Now, those specific stories as to what was happening in women can be saved for those books that they're going to be writing, but I hope they write. 
But these stories, this unfortunately, everything Rhapsody went through was everything Bahamadia went through. And in many ways, everything Jean Grey went through. And a little bit of what Dessa went through. And I'm sure then that could be applied to Eternia. But I think Eternia is different because she's also, she's Canadian, isn't she? Yeah, she is. Um, although she spent a considerable amount of time in Connecticut, but yeah. Right. But, you know, you're, you're talking a different audience, different scene, different, different eras. Um, but the story remains the same. Like, um, you know, someone had asked me, and in Psalm 1, Psalm 1's brilliant. But again, um, I wasn't able to put it all in. I have a lot of cutting room floor chapters. I had a whole chapter where I was discussing Nana Cherry because of just what, um, what the song Buffalo Stance did for hip hop and, and how she was able to cross over from from the UK and how she was part of an artistic community that didn't make it in the book. I, I didn't want to have a, a 600, uh, you know, yeah. word book, exactly. but there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of stories that had to be omitted, but the spirit of how, what happened remains, you know, and I did, there was a part of the book too, literally at the end where I listed every like dope female MC that I ever wanted to reference in the world and my editor's like all right look <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, we can't do this <laughs> and, and I and I had to omit it I tried but I also when I read the book now I realize how much harder that would be to just pack everyone in and just have this whole discussion of like well and let's not forget this let's not forget that this wasn't to get like street cred for me knowing every female rapper I could list every female rapper, probably whoever touched a mic right now, right down to the person who's auditioning in her room. Okay. But that doesn't make a good book. Yeah. You know, so I think, um, you know, maybe I'll save it for part two, but I, I do hope that these artists come through with their own stories now because they're just equally as important. But the sentiment of the experience, that just, re- that just remains the same. Fair enough. I want to shift the conversation towards talking about the new book that you have coming out in 2021 on Aaliyah. Um, for those listening at home, are you able to give a brief rundown of what this project is and how you approach the subject matter for the Aaliyah book? Yeah. Yeah. So Baby Girl, Better Known as Aaliyah, you know, coming out August 17th, 2021, Atria Books, Simon & Schuster. And then in essence, um, most every Aaliyah book in existence really kind of cuts off a little bit after she passes away. And what this book does by design, it tells the story of Aliyah, but also um, travels further into the 20 years since she passed and what she represents for music today, what she doesn't represent for music today, which is actually having music out, right? But still remaining this legend and having this whole legacy and having this whole story and that's what I, I do with, with the book is, is create this story that now travels further into Aaliyah's life, artistic life, because she does have an afterlife even um, following her passing that not too many artists have. And in order to tell, in order to tell the story accurately, I did have to include certain things that at first I didn't want to include. I had to talk about a bit about R. Kelly and, and what happened there, right? Yeah. Um, you obviously have to discuss the plane crash yep. and and then everything in the middle, right? So 
it is, you know, the news outlets, as soon as they found out that I would even mention R. Kelly's name, became, you know, headlines everywhere, which was just um, a little troubling. But it also is a testament to the fact that people are so still plugged into this story. And I, I, it's a great, that's a great thing. But I just want to make sure that they're not consistently plugged into the wrong part. So, at, what, at what stage did you know that you were going to end up writing this book? Did you know it while you were writing God Save the Queens? Um, a little, a little bit. Like I, you know, I have my, I have my books, my dream books, my goal books in my head. Like they, they kind of circle around and sure. um, I'll leave definitely a book that I wanted to write at some point. And I wanted to make sure that that story was told. And I, I had hoped that after God Save the Queen, that book was still there. And uh, it was. So, yeah, that Aaliyah was, um, was literally one of my favorite artists of all time. So I, I wanted to do a book on her. I, 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 want, I had to do a book on her. Like, that's, again, like when I, when I tell you that I only write about the things that I really <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean it. So yeah. you know, if someone were to tell me to, like, what, what are, what's a book that you want to write? Well, I have to write a book that, like, talks about Lauren Hill and Little Kim and, you know, even Nicki Minaj, like, I, and now even Megan Thee Stallion. Like, I, I really want a book about, like, that, like, those artists, right? And then I want a book about Aaliyah. The, the, that conversation would never change. Like, that, that's the, at the core of, like, who I am as a writer is writing about things I like. But that, it was a concept in my head and then in, in trying to figure out what was coming next. I think, like, right after I wrote the book, um, right after I finished God Save the Queens, the wheels were already turning for Aaliyah. So, gotcha. yeah, I, I managed to, I sold, I sold that book within a month or two of God Save the Queens coming out. This one seems to be a lot more singular focus than than God Save the Queens, anyhow, uh, given the fact that it's kind of a singular portrait. Um, previously, you had worked with Prodigy one-on-one, and there's obviously differences here, considering Prodigy at the time you had the pleasure of meeting face-to-face and, and working hands-on with, with the book. Um, but nevertheless, it ends up being that single artist perspective. Um, which again is kind of in similar vein to the Aaliyah book, but how is this, how is this experience writing this one compared to working with the prodigy book? Well, I think there's certain parallels, right. In, in a weird, um, multidimensional way. Prodigy was my very good friend. Aaliyah was my best friend in my head. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So there's that, there's that similarity. If we're like, there's a line there. Right. There's an there's an intimacy that you have um, an affection for these artists that you kind of um, want to do these books to kind of chip away at the at the layers to get to the, the core of the person. Right. Yeah. In both of them, unfortunately, my hero dies at the end. He, pa- yeah. he passed away less than a year um, after Commissary Kitchen came out. Right. Yeah. Aliyah, I was already writing. A, I already knew what the unfortunate end was. There's that. Um, the differences, I would say, are. P was my, like I said, P was my friend. So, I learned new things about his prison experience while we were doing the book. Right. 
but I've always known P as a human being because he was my friend. So he was, sometimes I even forgot that he was a legend from Mob Deep, right? You forget those things when, when that's your friend, right? Yeah. So like I, I knew P as a human and sometimes forgot he was an artist. I knew Aaliyah as an artist and, and forgot she was a human. And I think that's the big difference. So when I'm when I'm researching and I'm reading and I'm hearing these conversations and I'm remembering my own fandom for Aaliyah and I'm digging through song lyrics that suddenly change their meaning when you understand the stories behind them, you start to see the human, right? And that's yeah. where the story gets very different. So with with this book, I you know, I've always, I've always felt like I've known Aliyah in this book. I've known, I, I get to know Aliyah Houghton. And I think that's, that's the big difference where it like kind of worked in reverse. Right. So that's, that's something that um, would be like really a fundamental difference, but also, you know, I wrote this book in the middle of the pandemic. Right. And it was really hard to put a book together where, you know, you knew how it was ending and then you're still being surrounded by so much unfortunate, you know, death and darkness and, you know, uncertainty. And I think like that was, that was pretty, pretty hard to do. But what I would do was I would dedicate a couple hours a day and just rewatch Aliyah videos and watch interviews and, and put myself back into the, um, the part where I, like I would wrap myself back up in a blanket of fandom as opposed to constantly remembering the human element, because if you think too hard about what she went through, um, it can get really dark, you know, but then you remember how amazing she was in spite of all the things she had been through. So I think that's where, you know, there's the light at the end of the tunnel, but yeah, I would say that's, that was the big difference is, you know, prodigy was a human put in my head then became a star. Aaliyah was the star who then became a human. I ha I obviously haven't read the Aaliyah book, but do you think, um, from someone that obviously wrote it, do you think it, it has kind of a dark tone to it, or do you think it's more celebratory, um, by the, by the last page kind of thing? Well, I think like with any, with any story, right. With any, um, discussion on, um, like a celebration, right? So many celebrations come from the big exhale of like having done something that leads up to that. So like if you're, if you have a graduation, it's from having all this hard work in school, right? Yeah. You know, that, that there, there's a lead up no matter what. And in Aliyah's case, there were some dark moments, but for the most part, it was all light, but it was all, the light shines brighter when you know how dark um, certain parts were, right? Like, it, 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 things look brighter. You know, she was already bright, but she looks even brighter when you realize the darkness she emerged from in, in some in some respect, right? So... Yeah, that contrast. Yeah, it's not a dark book by, by any uh, means. Like, you're not, like, reading this book, like, just sad, the whole book. <laughs> but there are parts where you're just going to be like, oh, man, like... I had no idea or, oh my gosh, that just makes her that much more incredible. 
those kinds of things, those are the moments I'm after with this book. It's just, you know, people, when, when someone closes this book, they look at Aaliyah as a feminist icon. They look at her as like a hero, even bigger than just, oh, she was so cool in her Tommy Hilfiger outfit. No, this is, this is someone who, if she were still here today, would probably be doing so much activism work and, and things that like, like game changing initiatives. Like I just, I know it, I know it. So that's, that's the part where when you close the book, you're like, oh man, like she was a trailblazer, but she went through the fire. Like she, Aaliyah was the Phoenix. So that's where, that's what I want, you know, people to take from the book when they're done reading it. Do you feel like after the publication and success of God Save the Queens and then following it up with a portrait on Aaliyah, um, that you will somehow be characterized or pigeonholed as this like women's studies urban writer or um, a writer that focuses on women within hip hop or black media? Um, I spoke to, to Anthony Kwame Harrison recently, and he ended up expressing kind of this concern with his own identity as a writer, and he has shifted entirely from covering hip-hop at all as an attempt to kind of diverge his role in the media as this um, kind of hip-hop scholar. Um, I guess my question to you is, how do you see yourself as this, uh, as a spokesperson, like as a public figure at this point? Do you see yourself as um, a writer covering these issues, or do you see yourself more broadly as just a journalist? That's a good question. Um, I see myself as just a journalist and author and documentarian and... I think, again, the the scope of my work, like, you know, I've interviewed um, rock artists and electronic artists and, and um, jazz musicians and country musicians. Like, you know, the span of my 20-year writing career certainly wasn't just hip-hop um, and still won't be. But the heart of it, right, like uh, the heart heart of it does... Um, does involve hip hop or women in hip hop or female artists. And that's not something that I would ever run away from. Um, not to say that, um, you know, shifting gears means you're running, but um, sure. I think that for me right now, where, where I, I'm going, you know, as far as my career is concerned right now, it's, it's still very much, it stays in a lane of um, telling stories about women who previously haven't had their stories told. Gotcha. So if that's, if that's the case, like if, if it lets, if I call that my lane, right, there's so many other stories to be told across the board and that can last um, a lifetime of a career. So I'm not, I'm not like stressed. And also to be told that like, I'm, um, I'm a, I'm a writer who only focuses on women or only focuses on hip hop. Like, I don't see that as a bad thing, you know, especially when hip hop is number one and women are amazing. So it's not, I don't, that's nothing to be ashamed of. So give yeah, me what's your title, <laughs> right? Um, with that, I will end up letting you go. But again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out to speak to me here today and for coming on the podcast. I'd love to have you back on in the future, uh, especially after I end up actually reading the Aaliyah book, um, which, again, I'm really excited for. Uh, for those listening at home, it is available in 2021. Uh, what was the exact release date? You mentioned it earlier before this before this conversation yeah. started. 
August 17th, 2021. Perfect. Um, but again, thank you. And I'd love to have you back on at some point in the future. Yeah, for sure.